Now, um, a little introduction before we get into this. Uh, I'll share with you my experience as a young boy growing up in the church and not having a clue what to do with the prophets. And, and that's because I would hear uh, the prophets aren't really taught very much. Most Christians really don't know what to do with that part. And in their devotions, this is a part of the Bible that often gets almost completely skipped because people are uncertain what to do with it. And I would hear verses from the prophets read, and sometimes the preacher would make it sound like this was about America. And then other times you'd hear it, and it would say, well, this is about the church. And other times you'd hear it, and this is about Israel. And I was really kind of perplexed. Uh, pro prophetic writings are among the most difficult things to understand. And I'm not just talking about how to figure out a timeline of end-time events. That is a difficult thing. But even way beyond that, it's just how to handle this huge part of the Old Testament. And let me say right away tonight, so I can pop any bubbles of false expectation, that this evening's study is not primarily about end-times events. Often when we talk about, when we hear the word prophecy, we immediately think about prophecies about the end of the age. And there will be some discussion of that this evening, but it's not primarily about how to st stitch together an understanding of the tribulation and the millennium and things like that. As a kid, I would often be puzzled by statements like here in Isaiah 5, verse 25. Uh, this is one of hundreds of statements like this in the prophets where uh, Isaiah is thundering against Israel and he says things like this. On, a, on this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. And I would read that and I would think, I thought Jesus paid for my sins. <laughs> uh, I thought, and I would hear verses like Romans 8, you know, there's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and, and then I read this, and as a God is thundering in anger, and, and he's not done yet. And, and so I struggled, even through, through college, after going through, uh, having a major in Bible and going on to seminary, really struggling, the, how, what, what do I do with these kind of verses? Uh, what should I think about God when I read verses like this? Uh, one piece of my understanding that was missing for a long, long time is that the prophets of the Old Testament, one of their chief jobs is to be an enforcer of the covenant. Or sometimes the phrase that's used is a messenger of the covenant. And there's a famous phrase in the, in the, the last of the prophets in Malachi, the, what in our English Bibles is the end of the Old Testament, uh, just a reminder, in the Hebrew Bible it isn't. Uh, it's not the, last, not the last book written, Chronicles, or Nehemiah might be, but uh, nonetheless, here at the end of our English Bibles, and in Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here is a prophecy about a coming prophet and maybe the Messiah too, and this is a debate as how many people are prophesied here, but what I want you to notice is that this coming prophet 
whether it be John the Baptist or whether this is Jesus, that's the debate. But notice that the prophet is described as the messenger of the covenant. And that is actually a great label for many of the prophets of the Old Testament. They were messengers of the covenant. That is, they were sent to enforce the terms of the covenant. And the covenant that looms the largest over the Old Testament is the covenant made at Mount Sinai. So all that to say, a lot of the thunderings of the prophets in the Old Testament are taking what was said in the covenant at Mount Sinai and reminding Israel of how they have failed. And their message was often not about how you can uh, know that if you were to die tonight, uh, you'd be able to stand before God and explain why you should be led into heaven. Uh, they, they were concerned with the afterlife, but they were more concerned with that God dwells here in our midst, in that temple in Jerusalem, and we have broken the covenant, and wrath may pour out amongst us. Uh, that is, a, if you can get your hands around that, it helps a lot. Now, for, as we get into the body of the study tonight, I want to explain what I'm going to do in terms of direction. Firstly, I'm going to zoom way out. Think of ourselves in an airplane, we're at a high altitude, and we're going to kind of look at the landscape of the prophets. And then we're going to zoom in a little bit more and get closer to understanding the different sorts of things that they wrote. So, number one in your handout, it says that there are various kinds of prophecy. We're talking about Old Testament prophecy. Prophecy is inspired, insightful speaking, but that speaking might not only be about the future. It might be insightful, inspired speaking about the past. It might be inspired speaking about the present, the very day of the prophet himself. And this ties us back to something that we mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were discussing the prophets who smoldered and burned, that there are a lot of writings in the Old Testament that are prophetic histories prophetic histories, and by that we don't mean that they're writing history before it happens, uh, but that th this is, these are men inspired of the Spirit to look back over what had happened in the previous centuries and give a prophet's perspective on what God had done, how Israel had failed, or how Israel had succeeded. In the Jewish tradition, many books of history, what we call the history books, are actually regarded as prophetic books. Um, so the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, all of these are written by prophets. Now, th the names of them we don't know. Joshua may have written Joshua, but we don't know for sure. Uh, Judges, we don't know who wrote it. Samuel, remember, he, the person Samuel dies halfway through the book of Samuel, so <laughs> he, he didn't write it, but uh, it may be uh, Nathan, Gad, others contributed to what was written. Kings is written by prophet. These are all books that, for the most part, are explaining the, the unfaithfulness of Israel throughout since they came out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Now, they, 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 there's some bright spots, too, but mostly that these men, these prophets, are explaining how Israel failed to meet the terms of the covenant at Mount Sinai. These books are uh, traditionally called, in the, that is in the Jewish tradition, they're called the former prophets. The former prophets. Now that doesn't mean ex-prophets. <laughs> this means that in the, in, the, in the books of the Hebrew Bible, 
these are the ones that come first. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, they come first as opposed to the latter prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so forth, that come later. They, they come earlier in the collection of the book. So, when, and I didn't put the cross-reference here, and I should have, but there are several times in the Gospels where Jesus will say something like, uh, as it says in the law and the prophets. And what he means is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so forth. It includes, not, it includes the prophetic histories as well as the, uh, the writings of the, the great prophetic individuals like Isaiah. All right, so there are prophetic histories. That's a, we don't think of these books. But if you think about it, though, every book of the Bible is written by someone exercising the gift of prophecy. The law is written by the spirit of prophecy. Um, the Psalms, David is said to be a, a, a prophet when he writes the Psalms. That's in, because it is inspired communication. The Spirit has enabled them to communicate exactly what he intended them to know. So there are prophetic histories, and then I, I suppose letter B is what we typically think of when we think of the prophets and what they're, what they're saying, that they are prophetic messages. There are prophetic messages, uh, many of which have been combined and compiled into parts of the Old Testament. These are mostly, the, the $50 word for the night is anthologies, a collection of individual messages over a prophet's span of ministry. Now, in, in the Christian tradition over time, we started to call these the major prophets and the minor prophets, which is a really unfortunate kind of label nowadays because it sounds like important and not so important. <laughs> but that's really not what that means. Major just means big, and minor just means small. And we're not talking about their, their stature either. I mean, Isaiah, we've broken that up into 66 chapters. That's really, really big. Uh, Jeremiah has fewer chapters but way more verses. Jeremiah is the biggest book of the Old Testament apart from the Psalms. Um, uh, Ezekiel is a long book. Um, but then you get to say Haggai, not so long. In fact, the, 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 those smaller books are so small that the tradition was they would all be copied on a single scroll over time and uh, called uh, in the Christian tradition again we use the name the minor prophets that's not a name that's used in the Bible itself it's just a description if you flip the, your handout open you'll see that there's a list of those the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and then the minor prophets, the twelve, uh, as they're called, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. By the way, these twelve here, that list, is not in the order in which they were written. Uh, the first six are sort of, kind of, in order. The, the first six were all written when there was still two kingdoms of Israel. There was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. But the way they're arranged, Hosea, see if you remember, Hosea ministered in which? The north or the south? Remember? Hosea ministers in the north. Joel ministers in the south. Amos ministers in the north. Obadiah ministers in the south. Jonah is from the north. Micah is from the south. That's why they're arranged this way. It just kind of alternates. But they're not in order, you know, 
uh, uh, as to who came first. Joel or, or Obadiah are probably the earliest of them. And then the next three, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, these guys minister in Judah when there's only Judah left. Israel's gone. And then the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these three minister when the Jews came back, when the Babylonian captivity was over. The latter prophets, now, is that's the name in the Jewish tradition for all of these. And now, interestingly, when, when the Jewish um, copyists put together their copies of the Bible, they didn't put Daniel with the prophets, even though they believed Daniel was a prophet and he had prophecies. Uh, he was included in another part of their Bible, which will, uh, I'll, I'll go into that in just a moment. Well, I'll go into that right now. So Jesus spoke of the law and the prophets, and there was one other division. Do you remember what it is? The law, the prophets, and the writings. The writings, and that includes the Psalms and the Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ruth, Esther, and Daniel. Daniel is mentioned there. So let, let me go on now to talk about, there's two of the prophetic books that are most unusual amongst all of them because they are made of prophetic stories. And we're talking now about the latter prophets, the pr prophetic stories. There are two books with significant amounts of story in them. And the, the, the first of them is the book of Daniel. The first of them that I'm going to mention anyway. Uh, Daniel was, uh, came later than Jonah, but uh, about half of the book of Daniel is stories. Stories of him and his friends being taken away from Judah, off to Babylon, and, you know, Daniel and the, the, the fiery, his three friends in the burning fiery furnace, and there's the handwriting on the wall that Daniel is able to interpret, and there's the lion's den. It's fantastic stories. Um, the large amount of stories in the book is what led the Jewish scholars of ages past to put Daniel with the writings, the stories of Ruth and Esther, who lived in that same period of time also, Esther did. Um, the writings often present to us examples of godly living. Um, the first book in the writings uh, is the Psalms and um, in fact, sometimes Jesus will say, he'll put it this way, in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he'll say, which is the first book of the writings. Then how does Psalm 1 begin? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Here's an example for us. The Psalms open with an example. And then the next book is Job in the Hebrew Bible, an example for us. Not always a perfect one, but a, the Proverbs are instruction about how the individual ought to live. And so later on you come to this prophet Daniel, and he is a living example of how to live in difficult times. So the books that are in the writings tend to highlight the, the character of individuals. And you even see it by the way, in the, in, the, in the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, which retells a lot of the same stories from Samuel and Kings, but it tends to leave out the worst parts and highlight the better parts because it's trying to say this is what we ought to imitate from these characters in times past. And so in the book of Daniel, uh, the stories of Daniel actually reinforce the main teaching of the prophecies of Daniel, the other half of the book. They reinforce what he's trying to teach. 
And, and the primary message of all of Daniel's prophecies is God is going to restore his kingdom, but it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. In fact, there were Jews in that era who wrongly thought they were going to go home real soon. Ezekiel, who was ministering, overlapped in time with Daniel, was actually having to write letters to Jews in Babylon saying, look, don't, don't pack your bags. You are not coming back soon. In fact, you, you need to be, you're going to be there for the long haul. So pray for the peace of Babylon because it goes well for them. It'll go well for you. It's going to be 70 years before you come back. 70 years. And then Daniel, who's in Babylon, he doesn't disagree with any of that, but his prophecies are that it's not, it's not just 70 years before they go back. How many years is it going to be before the kingdom comes back? 70 times 7. So yes, they'll go back, but the kingdom is on delay. In fact, before the kingdom of, the, the, the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and its glory, Daniel prophesies there's going to be wave after wave after wave after wave of world kingdoms. But in the end, they'll all fall. Um, so Daniel is an example of what it's like to lead a godly life when the kingdoms of this world are running the day. Uh, so his stories reinforce the patience that he urges his people uh, to have. So there's a, a book with prophetic stories. The, the very things he goes through reinforces prophecy. And then there's, then there's the other uh, famous book of prophets with stories, and that's Jonah. Well, I mean, the whole book is a story, a true story at that, unique amongst all of the latter prophets and that it is entirely a story. In fact, there's only one futuristic prophecy in the whole book. It's in chapter 3, verse 4, when he finally gets to Nineveh after fighting with God over it. And the, the, the prophecy recorded is, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And ironically, Jonah is, his prophecy doesn't come true, and yet he's the most successful prophet in the Old Testament because the city of Nineveh repents and believes his message. Now, I, I think that that prophecy was conditional, and the people of Nineveh hoped that it was so, and it turned out it was so, that if they repented, things would turn around. And uh, I'm going to share with you one, this isn't in your notes, there's one interesting kind of, I'll call it a pun, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but <laughs> that, that word there, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown, if you put it in another context, means turned around. And that's the irony. Forty days come, and Nineveh isn't overthrown, but it is turned around. It's an ironic twist, and God's plan was fulfilled even though that, that statement of judgment was delayed. The story itself that of Jonah's disobedience and his fighting with God is the story itself is a prophetic message, but it's not a message to Nineveh. It's a message to Israel to be on guard about the self-righteous attitude that uh, Jonah himself had who thought that God cared only for Israel and that God didn't have the sovereign right to show mercy to others. 
Um, Jonah says some really profound things and does some incredibly stupid things. And I, I find it interesting that the, the thing that happens right in the middle of the book, right after Jonah says the most perfect thing he says in the whole book, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the next thing that happens is the whale <laughs> vomits him out. Now, everything he said was right, but the attitude with which he said it was wrong. And the vomiting, and now God, couldn't God have had the whale get him out in a nicer way? You heard about the lobster fishermen, the lobster men, what are all those guys? Uh, yeah, a couple of days ago in the news, he was swallowed by, uh, I think it was, a, was it a gray whale, I think? And uh, a humpback, that's right. It was an accident, I'm sure. And he just sort of spat him. But you know, he wasn't covered in blood. Jonah is covered in blood. And it's sort of a visual display about what God thinks of Jonah's self-righteousness at that moment. And in fact, the whole book is a warning to Israelites about that. Now, those are unique, these prophetic stories. These are unique. This is not the norm. So we, we've been sort of zooming at a higher altitude. That, well, there's these kinds of prophets and those kinds of prophets. And I want us to zoom in a little more closely now and focus on uh, the latter prophets, that is, the, the, the prophets who wrote down messages about their time and give you a little bit of uh, a, a, maybe a grid to help you understand the kinds of writings that they have. There are, I'm going to talk now about kinds of prophetic oracles. Oracles. Now this is not a software company. I suppose there is one named that, but this is a word that means an inspired utterance. An oracle is an inspired message. There are different kinds of prophetic inspired messages. Most of the individual messages, these inspired utterances of the prophets, will fit into one of four groupings. Now, there are a few others that don't. And this is the way it often is with categorizing anything, like, uh, you know, when you do your laundry, uh, I'm hoping you all do laundry. The, the, you know, you got your whites and your darks and your permanent press, and every once in a while there's something else, and you think, I don't know what to do with this. And it, <laughs> but most of what you have fits into these categories, right? So most of what you read in the prophets is going to fit into one of these four spots. So one kind of prophetic message uh, is a message of instruction. Instruction. And I'm going to have to make some room on the board in a moment, I see. Instruction. This is where, this well, actually not one of the more common types, but it is nonetheless important. And this is where the prophet is teaching the people how they ought to live, laying out a code of conduct for the, his audience to follow. And oftentimes this is instruction about uh, repentance or godly living or how to be faithful to the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai. And I've got, I think I've listed five examples there. Maybe we'll start with the first, and I'm not sure we'll look at every one of them. But Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 is a good snippet of a prophecy of instruction. Jeremiah 3, we'll back up to verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north, that is to Israel, and say, 
Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Uh, we'll keep reading a little bit. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you from one, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And on it goes actually now into a different kind of prophetic uh, speech. So that, that's a word of instruction. Turn back to me. It'll go well with you. I want you back with me. Um, Flip forward to the book of Amos, chapter 5. Amos. Amos, chapter 5. Amos, uh, I mentioned earlier, Amos was a prophet to the north. The irony is he was from the south. He was a farmer down in the south, and God called him unexpectedly to go up to the false temple in the north and thunder against them <laughs> and call them to repentance. And Amos 5, verses 14 to 15, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So here he's instructing them, this is the way you ought to be living you ought to turn back to the Lord, and that means some very specific things that need to change. I, I think maybe the, maybe the most famous oracle of instruction uh, in our day is Micah chapter 6. And I say the most famous because there's been scripture choruses that this has been turned into. Micah chapter 6. Micah, by the way, uh, he's a prophet in Jerusalem. He is a contemporary of Isaiah. Their ministry is almost exactly the same time period. And they even share some verses in common with each other. And, and this, this is a famous one now. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Any of you know a scripture chorus that, that, that's been turned into? A few of you, yeah. This is an oracle of instruction. Well, I won't take us to the other two. You can look at those later on. Uh, I want to move on. And, and before I move, well, I'm just going to flip the board now. We're going to lose the fancy title here. Is that okay? Yeah, that's all right. I know you were just now disappointed that that's gone. But uh, a, a second kind of prophetic oracle is an oracle of indictment. Indictment. This is where the prophet is acting like a lawyer. In fact, they even say something, sometimes they'll say things like, the Lord has a case against you. <laughs> Prophecy of indictment. This is actually a very common kind of thing that you'll find in the prophets, where they are preaching specifically against sin and revealing guilt. Now, so this is a little bit different than instruction. Instruction is, this is what you ought to do. But this is, do you realize what you're doing? Israel, in the prophets, is often indicted for not keeping the covenant. Particularly, that means that they're committing idolatry, or maybe they're caught up in ritualism, or they're allowing gross social injustice. 
So there are indictment prophecies against Israel and Judah for that. And then the, the other nations are also indicted too, although never are they indicted for not keeping covenant because they're not in covenant with God. They're indicted instead for things like idolatry and violence especially. Okay, let's go to uh, uh, Isaiah. Um, you know what, I'm going to come to that one later. Let's go to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, and this is a, a long stretch. I won't read all of it, but we'll get a little feel for it. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Um, maybe I'll back up to verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed, where no one dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. And on the indictment goes for the rest of this long chapter. And um, this is, it's in this sort of portion where, you know, I, uh, Jeremiah will have his famous lines as these opening chapters roll out. You know, Israel has done, committed two iniquities. They've forsaken me, the fountain of the living waters, and they've hewn out for themselves cisterns that hold no water. I mean, it, it's bad enough that you let go of a living spring, the fountain of living water. I mean, if you have a choice between a ditch to collect rainwater or a living spring, which one are you going to choose? You're going to choose a living spring. But it's bad enough to reject that, but now you're going to make a cistern to collect dirty runoff water, and it's got holes in it. That's what Israel did by going after other gods. These are prophecies of indictment. And uh, we're going to look later on at Isaiah 1 and see a, another example of this, but you can later on, as you have time, read some of those other examples I've listed for you out of Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Let's go on to a third kind of prophecy, and this is maybe the one that we tend to think of the most when we think of the Old Testament prophets, and that is oracles of judgment. Oracles of judgment. That is where they announce that God is going to bring judgment either on Israel or on the nations or maybe just the whole world. Uh, these futuristic prophecies lay out God's plan to bring judgment uh, on the nations. And of, of all, if you were to tally up all of the prophetic utterances, about half of them 
are messages of judgment. That's a lot. And, and, and they're futuristic judgments, uh, that is, it, it's something that hasn't happened yet, it's about to happen, like 40 days, and then it will be overthrown, that's a short-term announcement. Uh, or it might be in Isaiah's day, he's telling them the one, um, Haggai, chapter 1, explains that there'd been a, a recent experience of a locust invasion, and he informs them uh, that, uh, actually I, I'm confusing that with Joel. Joel does that, explains that this was a judgment. Haggai also does something similar about recent events. But judgment, a huge part of the prophets is this. And then the last one, the ones that we like the most, are aftermath. Aftermath. Now all this has nothing to do with what you do after one of your school classes. <laughs> aftermath is when the judgment is done and it's time to rebuild. It's time to restore. These are prophecies of deliverance. So the, the idea is that judgment has come and now it's gone and there's a glorious rebuilding that the Lord has promised to do. And some of these are short-term prophecies like Ezekiel says, and Jeremiah says as well, 70 years and we're coming back. Some of them are long-term prophecies like 70 times 7 before <laughs> the kingdom comes. And some of them, it's unclear. Is this going to happen in the days of the Old Testament? Is it going to happen later? And you have to wait until you read more of the prophetic witness. These are the portions that we enjoy the most that speak of glory and peace and restoration. Now, turn over to the last page with me and just a, a couple other comments about that. And that is, it is not at all uncommon for a prophetic writing to have all of these, to have all of these uh, things within it, a mixture of these elements. And I'll also say I'll mention this next one right now, that it's not uncommon for uh, messianic prophecies to be found in any one of these. In other words, you, a prophecy about the Messiah can show up in any of these. There'd be a prophecy of judgment, and the Messiah is there. Uh, think about Isaiah 53. That's a word of judgment. It's also a word of indictment. We are the guilty ones, but look at him. He's been judged, right? Um, so messianic prophecies can show up in any of these. And it's not uncommon for the prophets to mingle these sorts of things together. And the two blanks that go in that spot, you, there is a, a spot for Isaiah chapter 1, which we're going to read that in its entirety in a moment. Isaiah chapter 1 has messianic prophecies, and it has pretty much all of the kinds of prophecy we just talked about. And then Psalm 2 is uh, also a, it's a, psalm, it's a poem, but it has prophetic elements. It has all four of those elements, and it's messianic also. All right, now I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 1, and I want you to think now about, let's, let's refresh. What are the four major kinds of prophetic words? There's a, there's a word of instruction. There's a word of indictment, a word of judgment, and a word of, we'll just call it restoration. So what are the four again? Uh, instruction, indictment, judgment, and restoration. All right, so we're going to read through Isaiah 1, and I'll read for a little bit, and I'll pause, and I'll ask you, what do you think, what kind of 
prophetic word do you think that was? All right. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Let me pause there. Now, in the verses 2, 3, and 4, which of the four kinds of prophecy do you think that is? That is indictment. You are guilty. <laughs> very, very guilty. Right? And, and by the way, notice that the first thing that's called is listen, O heavens, hear, O earth. Why is that there? Because back at Mount Sinai, when Israel entered into the covenant, Moses says, I call heaven and earth against you as witnesses this day that you have covenanted with the Lord. The heavens and the earth were the witnesses of the covenant. So here, the, the messenger of the covenant, Isaiah, is invoking these witnesses. Now, you can affirm what I'm saying. These people are unfaithful. That's indictment. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, this one's a little harder, so I'm going to uh, uh, open the stress valve and say that this is a prophecy of judgment, but he's not telling them what is going to happen. He's explaining what has happened recently, particularly when he says, your land's desolate, the cities are burned, your, the people are eating all your food. This is describing the, what happened after Assyria had come down into the borderland of Judah and burned cities after city after city. Jerusalem is still standing, but Judah is a mess. Uh, by the way, this is a, this, this, understanding that is really helpful in understanding that this chapter is not the first prophecy that Isaiah made. Remember, verse 1 told us he prophesied during Uzziah. In Uzziah's day, there was no Assyrian invasion. In Jotham's day, no Assyrian invasion. It's not until the days of Ahaz that the Assyrians come down. So this is a prophecy he uttered midway through his ministry. It's been put here as an introduction to his writings. And this is an explanation of judgment, that what they've been through is judgment for their breaking the covenant. All right, let's keep going. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered in blood. What kind of prophecy is that, mostly? This is close. You're, you're on the edge. The next verse is instruction. This is back to indictment. You, you, you're self-righteous. I mean, what, what, what do you think? You think I'm impressed by all your rituals? I mean, yeah, you're keeping the mechanics of the law, but not the heart of the law. You know what? I mean, I, if, you, if this is the way you're going to keep festival and Sabbath and all that, I don't want any of it. I mean, get off of my porch. This is a prophecy of indictment with a little bit of warning of judgment at the end. I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. Now, the idea is, unless you repent, in fact, now come with me to verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What kind of prophecy is that? That's instruction. Now, we've, we've all made it real clear what you're doing wrong. Now, this is what you ought to do in its place. Come to me. Turn to me. You'll find forgiveness and restoration and newness of life. Let's go on uh, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who is full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. What's that? That's indictment. Back to indictment. There's a lot of indictment in this chapter, isn't it? And now look at verse 24. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah! I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Now this is kind of a mix, isn't it? It starts off with judgment, and then it ends with restoration, right? And now we come to the end of the chapter, verse 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with, with righteousness, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together 
and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, that's the pagan worship sites, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. So this started off with a word of restoration, but is mostly a word of judgment. So there you've got, in this one chapter, in this first, uh, it's not the first message Isaiah spoke, it's been put here at the front, the introduction to it, has got all four kinds of prophecy. So if you can keep in your mind that the prophets kind of switch to this kind of talk, it's helpful in knowing that, you know, that they, it's normal for them to change gears. And, and what they're doing is going after Israel for breaking the Mosaic covenant. All right, a, a few last comments, some insights for reading the prophets, and I'll try to go quickly through this. When you read the prophets, particularly Isaiah, we'll use that as a great example, don't think of this as a journal. You know, when, when you have a, and some of you may keep diaries, and they're dated. You, you don't write them out of order. I mean, none of you, uh, well, I'm going to skip five pages and start there, and then I'm going to skip back. You don't do that. That's not the way journals work. They are sequential day by day. We tend to think wrongly that that's what the prophets are, and they're not. Maybe a few of them are. But most of them are what goes in your blank. They are collections of the sayings of the prophets. And they are often not in the order in which they were first spoken. We saw that in Isaiah 1, where he's describing things that happened in the middle of his, uh, of his ministry, not at the beginning of it. So most of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so, and Daniel, are not in the order in which they spoke them. Sometimes, and we know this for certain, because sometimes they're actually dated in the third year of so-and-so, and then a few chapters later in the second year of so-and-so, and it's the same so-and-so. <laughs> So they've been put in order this way for some reason, usually because there's a theme that they're doing. So I would say Isaiah 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 are all, they are samples of his utterances over his 40 years of prophesying. They've been put at the front to introduce the rest of them. And then chapter 6 is the story about how he became a prophet early in his life. All right, so read them as collections. Think of them as uh, like our hymnal, you know. None of us uh, turn to hymn number one and say, oh, this must be the first hymn ever written. And look, there's the second. <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> now, these are arranged by theme, and that's the way it is in the prophets. Okay, secondly, read them as targeted messages, not universal proverbs. That is, they had an audience they were addressing, Isaiah is going after Jerusalem. Now, we learn from it. Uh, there are lessons for us to learn, for sure, but we are not Jerusalem. There are things he says to them that are specific to them. So we have to, as I've often stressed, we need to learn the difference between two-ness and four-ness. That is, these verses were spoken to Jerusalem, but they are for us. We learn from them, but they're not spoken directly to us. And if we can keep ourselves out of the text, we will prevent ourselves from misreading and misapplying a lot of God's Word.
I mean, the famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, I can't believe I, I'm not remembering it right now because this is on everyone's bookmarks and, and uh, bumper stickers. I know the plans. There we thank you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Who's the audience? Jews and Babylon. Plans to bring you back, but it's going to be on God's timetable, not yours. It's going to be a minimum 70 years. And so is there anything I can apply to that verse to myself? Yes, I can find analogies as to what the gospel promises me, but I can't just go pull that one out and ignore all the indictment and all the judgment ones, all the verses I don't, I, I'm not all that comfortable with. That's not how it works. So read these as targeted messages, not just as a grab bag. And then one last thing is understand that sometimes we didn't talk much about the visions that the prophets had, but sometimes the visions that the prophets have are not videos of the future. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't, and that's hard. Um, the prophets sometimes describe amazing scenes that the Lord gives to them, uh, but not all of them are like a video of things that are actually going to take place in the future. Now, let me quickly say, there are plenty that are. Uh, Isaiah 53, there's a vision uh, uh, told poetically of the suffering servant, and uh, much of that is literally takes place. But I'll, I'll give a big example, okay? The valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 371, it says. That should be Ezekiel 37, <laughs> Not, uh, there is no chapter 371, but Ezekiel chapter 37, the famous vision of the dry bones. Now, Ezekiel sees, uh, for sake of time, I won't read it, I trust you are somewhat familiar with it, but he looks out and there's all these dry bones in the field and the Lord says, shall these bones live? And then Ezekiel is thinking, are you crazy? But he knows not to say that to the Lord and says, you, O Lord, no. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, then they start the leg bone connected to the thigh bone, and that's where that song comes from. And all of a sudden, these bones are together, and skin comes on them, and there's this mighty, vast army. That is not a video of any future event. But it's a true prophecy. God is going to restore Israel, and raise them back up to be his people. The prophecy is true. There is a literal thing that will take place but it is not the vision, the, or let me put it this way again, the vision is not a video. So uh, Israel is what goes into that uh, blank there. Now, I can't tell you how common this is. I, there, there, are, there are things where, like Zechariah sees a, a vision of a woman in a basket being carried by large storks and the, the lid of the basket comes up, and the woman pops out, and a voice says, this is iniquity. And then they put an iron lid on the basket, and it flies away to Babylon. That is not a video of anything that actually happens. It is a vision that speaks to a reality, right? So sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, that's obviously not. I mean, this is, there's some kind of a, a metaphor in this vision that he says. But, but we've got to err in not turning everything into a metaphor 
That's our last blank. Don't turn everything. Just because there are visual metaphors doesn't mean that everything is a visual metaphor. Particularly when you see that prophets talk about the same kind of vision again and again. Particularly the reality that there will be a generation of Jews who will turn to the Lord and a glorious kingdom that will be restored to Israel. That theme is all over the prophets. It's all over the place, and I dare not metaphorize that. I have a dear friend who's in ministry, has a fruitful ministry, but he has a very different view of end times prophecy, and he explained to me one time, he says, you know, I, I want to be premillennial. That is, I, I want to believe that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom on earth, and I have good friends who teach that, but it's just so much easier to metaphorize it all. Don't take the easy way. <laughs> uh, we, we've got to deal with what the pro when the prophets stress something again and again and again, uh, we have to let that speak and not turn it into just a word picture. Well, I, I think I have turned on a fire hose tonight and, and uh, squirted it at you, and I hope it's not been too much. I hope it's been helpful. I hope as you read through the prophets that this will give you kind of a, a, a grid or some, some bins in which you can put uh, kind of uh, put some of these words and, and, and make sense of uh, what they meant and as we then pray about what can I learn from this message to the God's people of old? How can I grow in the gospel? How can I draw parallels to my life in Jesus Christ and what's been promised to me in the new covenant? Uh, and, and then we can profit truly from the prophets. Well, let's pray. Our, our Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to look at these many different verses and to consider the way you led these men of God to speak forceful words, words of, words of conviction, words of warning, words of teaching, words of comfort as well. And may we be willing to speak forth uh, your word and to represent accurately what you've revealed in your scriptures. Thank you for the good news that Jesus has come and he's coming again with his glorious kingdom. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.